Hello and welcome to Immigrantly. I'm your host Sadia Khan. Today I'm sharing another gem from the Immigrantly Vault. It's our conversation with Abu Bakr Ali. He's an actor, writer, and singer. Last year he landed a significant role in the upcoming Netflix series Grendel as the anti-hero Hunter Rose. This opportunity is historic because Abu Bakr is the first Arab Muslim actor to lead in a comic book adaptation. As he steps into the spotlight, Abu Bakr was recently featured in the New York Times and other significant publications. Since ours was his first ever podcast interview, we thought it would be fun to reshare our fantastic conversation, especially for listeners who recently became part of the Immigrantly community. So enjoy. Abu Bakr, I am so excited um, to have you on Immigrantly. So let's start with your upcoming show that you're casting. Now, there's been considerable buzz around Grendel. When you decided to go for it, what about the storyline appealed to you and why this anti-hero character, Hunter Rose? There's probably a hundred reasons for that. Um, I, for me, I've always been attracted to kind of like these, you know, like conflicted human beings. I just think they're the most interesting people. These people are kind mm-hmm. of like dealing with a billion things inside their brain going on. I think in terms of like the anti-hero trope or concept, mm-hmm. um, it's something I've always gravitated to, but frankly, never had the opportunity before. And I think, and this is a thing I've talked about with a lot of people, I think specifically dealing with like Muslim or like Arab actors, there has risen this trope in the industry of like, you either the good Muslim character, like not as in good Muslim, like I pray five times a day, all that Muslim, as in like <laughs> I am I am the Muslim that is not a threat. I am the Muslim that has released myself into Western Westernization. Like, Absolutely. Look at me. I'm one of you. I am just like you. Uh. Um, or the terrorist, which is the complete opposite end. Um, which for me is unexcited is uh, not not something I'm attracted to, frankly. And I, what is interesting to me about an anti-hero is that it kind of, frankly, it allows you to be a three-dimensional human being. As basic uh-huh. as that is, it allows you to be a three-dimensional human being who is flawed, who doesn't have to ascribe to one mode of existence. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think, frankly, like like a Muslim body, I hate the word body, but a Muslim body on screen or on camera or on stage, whatever it is, I don't think is afforded the opportunity to be that. Like, for example, uh, if you watch like a Tarantino movie. Gentlemen, you have my curiosity, but now you have my attention. Mm. Or if you watch like mm. uh, Batman. Why so serious? Whatever it is, anything like that. Those actors are afforded the luxury of treacherous acts <laughs> and an audience still siding with them. Ah. And I think that is something that, frankly, I know for me, I've never really been afforded to. I've never even, even thought was possible. That was like in the dreams. Do you know what I mean? Um, and sorry, that is my laptop. That ding you just heard, folks, was my laptop. It was my mother. <laughs> so yeah, I think for me, there's something really exciting about that, about the the opportunity to to live in that realm and, and have an audience understand where you're coming from and also see you at a, as a hero while you're doing it. You know, I love what you're talking about. And we've spoken about this on Immigrantly numerous times. So you've partly 
answered this question, but I'll still ask you, when determining which productions you audition for and ultimately star in, what do you look for? And how does your identity impact these choices and your work in general? That is a great question. It's funny. I think that is that, frankly, for me, speaking for myself, that has evolved through my career and I'm still early in my career, but Mm. like even as of 10 years ago, even as of three years ago, those questions have changed in my mind as I've gone. Mm. Because frankly, you know, the unfortunate reality of it is especially like 10 years ago is it's there's so little out there which is, right. is so wildly unfortunate. So for me, just to be very blunt and upfront, is like at the beginning of my career, I'll, I would go in for anything. I'll, you know, whatever you present me, I'll go in for it. I was very fortunate, thankfully, where I never, I don't know how this happened, but I never had to go in for like the terrorist role. Um, I got very lucky in that sense, thank God. But, you know, I, I wasn't, there was no room for me to be picky. It's so funny. You hear so many conversations with people being like, well, you know, I'm interested in this kind of character. I'm interested in this kind of character. And for, for me, and I'm sure with a lot of actors from you know various marginalized communities, it's slim pickings. And you're like, I, I unfortunately will have to take this role that is just like the plot device to aid this greater thing. I have mm. to pl- take this role, which is a one-dimensional thing that I can bring some sort of three-dimensionality to. And I think as time has gone by, and thankfully now I have the privilege of like having worked more often and have some sort of you know i have stuff behind me now where i can be much more choosy so like for now like now i i don't i will never take a role where it's like you know the random you know that like the arab plot device guy who aids the absolvement of like the white soldier you're absolutely right and in those cases the muslim arab slash south asian slash african they are never the protagonists no, it's very rare. They're always on the periphery. They're always in that supporting character role, right? And unfortunately, in service of whiteness. I yes. think that is a, a thing that exists and is a trope that uh, thankfully we're starting to see change through time, but it is a trope that still exists. Oh, Wicker, how did you end up this role, though? What's the backstory? Uh, let's, I'm trying to think of what I'm allowed to say. You know what's funny? It kind of came out of nowhere for me. So I was in Pittsburgh this summer and I was shooting this film for um, MGM and Orion that Billy Porter was directing, mm. which was, uh, it was like a high school romantic comedy. Uh, <laughs> it was the biggest joy of my life, frankly. It was so joyful and so, such an incredible time. But I was doing that, um... And I got, uh, so right now when actors audition, you get like a self-tape request, which ah. is, is literally, it, you know, it's just pre- presentation of like lines. And they were pretty secretive. I didn't know what it was. I really, I, I think I'm allowed to say that. Hopefully Netflix does not kill me for this. But I wasn't, <laughs> I, I, there was no, um, I didn't know what it was for. There was like a, a code name. Um, so for me, this is, this is kind of a funny story. I, because I was in the middle of shooting and I had very little time. I remember one of the scenes, they're going to kill me for this. One of the scenes was a very long scene. And I remember for my first tape of it, <laughs> this is awful. Um, I ended up putting on my laptop the lines. Oh, okay. Fully, honest to God, putting the camera next to my laptop, fully reading the lines as I was doing this scene to just uh-huh. get it out. You know, and doing this thing where, you know, I'd like be talking to the person, technically just reading the lines and then like look off to the side or something and then continue reading the lines. So for me, it was very random. I honestly, I treated it just like any other 
self-tape. Um, I'm sorry if you hear a dog barking. That is my neighbor's wildly loud dog. <laughs> it was just another tape, honestly. I, I really stumbled upon it. It just kind of happened. And uh, maybe a week, week and a half later, I, I got a call to to kind of go to the next step of it. And I, I can't, I don't think I'm allowed to give specifics after that, but mm. um, it, it really came out of nowhere. And for me, frankly, just to be very honest with you, again, like we were talking about, these roles don't come. The, and, and just to be honest with you, there's a thing that happens in the industry often where, um, you know, you have roles that are written out. And unfortunately, and I don't think this, this was the case. This was truly written for anyone mm. who could play it. But very often you find roles that you're like, you know, I think this was not written for me. This may have been written for probably a white person, a white man, whatever it is. And you sometimes get used to that, unfortunately. And the freeing thing about this is that I kind of went in thinking, you know what, this isn't for me. I'm just going to have fun and do it. It really wasn't a thing that I expected anything out of. I was like, I'm just going to kind of give into it and you know, do the thing, which I think was to my favor. Like for me, I kind of, I do like to kind of live in the space of release and not, not focusing on the things you can't control, mm -hmm. which I think for actors is such a trap, you know, focusing on like, oh, is this for me? Am I going to get this job? Am I, are they going to like how I did this? Are they going to like me? Is this the right choice? Rather than just releasing and playing and, you know, living, doing, your, breathing as that human mm -hmm. being and enjoying it. Do you think it has anything to do with the fact that you don't look visibly Muslim, quote unquote, whatever that warped definition of what a Muslim looks like in mainstream Western media and society entails? I can't speak to this specific situation, hmm. to be very honest with you, but that is the thing that exists, frankly. And I think for me, like a, as a light-skinned Arab person without a beard, that hmm. is a privilege that I, I, I carry in the world and in the industry, frankly. I, again, like I can't speak to this specific situation because, you know, I don't know whatever it was, but in the greater industry and in, in the realm of the world, yeah, I think it's really important to name that about yourself and that that does give you privilege as an actor, I think, and as a person out on the streets, frankly, it does. Um, yeah, I think that that's it's a very good question. I think it's very real and I think it's a discussion. You know, colorism is real. You know, there are different privileges that we all benefit from and I, I'm sure there are ways that I've benefited of this specific, you know, aspect of my identity. So I want to digress a bit and talk about your name, Abu Bakr. It's an Arabic name, Saadia. So that's an Arabic name too. In Pakistan, we either have Arabic names or Persian names. So I read somewhere that someone suggested to change your name at some point and you decided not to do that. What do you want to say to people who think name is expendable somehow? Like, why do people not understand the implications of that and how integral name is to somebody's identity. Let me speak to myself for myself first. Mm. And then in terms of kind of the greater world for myself, I just, I didn't want to like, frankly, that's, you know, my, my parents didn't work there. Am I, am I, am I allowed to curse on that? Can Absolutely. That? My parents didn't work their ass, uh, their ass off um, to, uh, to, you know, to come to this country and, and bring us to this country for me to kind of deny the name that they gave me. So for me, I think it was just something I, I honestly had no interest mm. in changing about myself. It's who I am. And, you know, to this day, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a grown ass man. And to this day, there are several moments where people mispronounce my name or 
people, you know, don't know what to do with it, blah, blah, blah. And I still, it's it's still a thing I'm struggling through and trying to figure out how to navigate, Mm. Um, especially, you know, in an industry where you're meeting new people every 30 seconds, you know, it's a whole thing. Um, But for me, you know, it's just, it's who I am. I kind of love it. And I love the... I love the uh, maneuverability of my name. Every single person in my family, my friends, everyone, everyone has a different name for me, which I kind of enjoy personally. Yeah. But in, you know, in terms of the greater world, obviously like, look, like as a cis man, like I've never had to think about changing my name. So, you know, I think mm. it's a really individual journey for each yeah, person. Every true. single person has different relationships to their name and the name they were born with. So for me, it really is what is best for you at the end of the day. It shouldn't be about what other people think. It shouldn't be about like what other people think something sounds. If something sounds good to you or feels right to you, then it is right for the world and Mm. the world will catch up to it. So Wakar, I want to take a step back and talk about your journey and how you got interested in arts. Now, when I think about arts, I think it takes a lot of nurturing, right? So there's a lot of... um, cost attached to it, whether time and energy. I think about parents who put in so much effort um, signing their kids up for camps or, you know, taking them to piano lessons. And at the same time, you can also consider art being um, dinner table conversation, right? It's sometimes integrated into family culture. So when it comes to you, how did you get interested in acting and Did you find yourself always fitting in or did it take a while to find your footing? It was an accident for me, just Hmm. to be very blunt. It kind of happened out of nowhere. Um, I initially, I wanted, eventually wanted to be like a film director. Ah. So I learned that you should take drama classes in high school. It'll look good on your application. So I was like, okay, I will do drama classes in high school. So I ended up, I did like this improv group in high school. I did, uh, you know, drama classes with our wonderful teacher, whose name was Mr. Bierman, who really was probably one of the the reasons I flew, I got into this. And I remember one day he pulled me aside and he was like, hey, you should consider pursuing this. You should consider pursuing this professionally. And, um, you know, my impressionable 16 or 17 year old self was like, "Uh, sure, let's do it. So I stumbled upon it in that sense, just to be very real with you. I, I wasn't one of those people who had like who grew up and thinking like, this is my inner calling. <laughs> I must transform into every human I see around me. That was just not me. Unfortunately, it was really an accident. So yeah, I applied to schools. I uh, ended up going to NYU for my undergrad and spent a couple of years in Los Angeles just, you know, pursuing it, honestly, and, mm. and you know, working and I worked in this wonderful theater called The Noise Within for about three and a half years where I really learned so much. And then eventually auditioned for grad school and ended up going to Yale School of Drama, which is now the which is now the David Geffen School of Drama at Yale. <laughs> the name change is always, I got to remember that. That was kind of my path into it. And then once I got out of grad school, things definitely changed in a very different way. I think I had a lot more access, which is unfortunate that an institution can kind of afford you that. And that kind of changed the trajectory of everything. I think in, in hindsight, and I've talked about this with a lot of people, but in hindsight, kind of people always ask me, like, why do you want to be an actor? What are you into it? And again, I've never been the guy who's like, you know, I want to pretend to be this other person. I like to inhabit another mm. person. That just wasn't me. I think in hindsight, something happened to my family and I think also to a lot of Muslim Arab families and I think also a lot several other marginalized communities in this country deal with this 
where for me, for our story, once September 11th happened, something happened where every time you were in public, you kind of had to show only about like one third of your identity, which mm-hmm. was the third of you that was the friendly aspect, the smiling person, the human being that was like, look, everyone, yeah. I'm a pleasant person. I am not a threat. I'm not going to do anything to any of you. You can trust me. I'm a kind person, which is toxic. You know, you, you have this toxic smile that I'm still as an adult, you know, working out of. And you were just denied, you know, the other two thirds of your identity, your personality, you know, your mischief, your ability to be just a bad kid or a, yeah. a, a, a kid that makes mistakes. You you couldn't be angry in public. You couldn't just be in a bad mood walking at home. You know, I remember I, if ever like I was in an argument or something with someone in my family in public, you kind of had to just stifle it because mm-hmm. you didn't want anyone around you to think that you were frankly just a human being. You had to let everyone know you were this smiling person. And I think subconsciously, in hindsight, what drew me to acting um, is that it was a space where you can allow those other beautiful two-thirds of your humanity hmm. to exist and to, to thrive and to be seen and accepted by, by a public. Whereas in, in the real world, at least growing up, you couldn't, or at least you felt that you couldn't show those other two-thirds of yourself to anyone but your immediate family within the confines of your hmm. home. I'm so glad you're talking about this because... A lot of Muslims face this. We just have these different identities, one that we have, we can show to the world and the other that we can show only within the confines of our homes. I hope that one day it'll change and I hope that people like you, if like more people like you are in the limelight, it will help. But what was your parents' reaction? Were they on board or were they like, what is he thinking? You know what's funny? Honest to God, my parents were pretty cool with it. Huh. Like, so I grew up playing tennis. Um, I grew up playing tennis and uh, I was, I mean, I was working kind of as an assistant teacher since I was like 14 years old, maybe even younger. Yeah. So I remember uh, in high school telling my parents like, look, I have this job, so I will always make money. But I was always <laughs> able to kind of make my, my first years out of undergrad. That's where I made most of my money. That was like my quote unquote day job, which was teaching tennis. Um, and... So my parents, shockingly, were pretty cool about it. Like, I never really dealt with much anything from them. They were very supportive. They were always really um, kind of chill about it, unless they were really good at hiding it. <laughs> but I did deal with a lot of backlash from, like, other families and family friends. I definitely saw a lot of that, which, and I still see it to this day, which is really unfortunate. Why do you think that's the case? You know, it's, and it's, I don't, it's not on them, honestly. It's honestly, it's more a, on they just don't know that they they don't see themselves for frankly represented so in their brain they're like you can't make a living doing this because i don't know anyone who's making a living doing mm. this which is I, I very much i empathize with and i understand so i think that is what it stems from mm. yeah to, i mean to this day honestly i deal with it and it's 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 very tough and for me it's it's i constantly have to remind myself to just like receive it from a place of grace because mm. oftentimes the knee jerk reaction is to be like well, here's my resume. Here's all the things I'm doing. Here's my here's what I'm making this year. All oh, here's blah blah blah, huh. which is toxic and should not be a thing. But you kind of it's such a knee jerk reaction because you want to let everyone know, like, no, like this is possible. I'm doing it. I'm putting. I've put in the work for this many years, and I I am you know making a living. All this stuff. Uh, I have health insurance. And all these, <laughs> these, are, these are things that exist. It's not just like playing around. It is a job, and it is a difficult job. And it's an important job. 
It's an important job, exactly. Well, it's so funny because, like, you know, you'll get all this shade, which, again, I, I understand completely where it comes from. You'll get that reaction, and then the next 25 minutes are discussing, you know, what they're watching on Netflix. Right, right. <laughs> it's like you're, you know, you're, you're throwing so much um, uh, shade. I, mean, I wish I had a better word than shade oh. at this profession that I've chosen to engage in and are dismissing it, yet it is what you've ta- you're talking about for the yeah. next hour. But I, you know, again, I, I do, I understand where it comes from. It, it, it comes from a space of not seeing the possibilities of it. And, you know, ho- hopefully we live in a time now where those possibilities can be seen. And also people understand that for an actor to be making a living, mm. there are tons of incredible Muslim actors I know there. I know out there, Muslim, Arab, any intersectionality within there, actors who are out there working, making a living and doing it beautifully who, um, you know, aren't Brad Pitt. Look at, like, Leith uh, Nackley from Rami, such an incredible actor. He is a good boy. The FBI went to his school and took him like a criminal. This is America. Who, you know, has been doing it for however many years. Um, uh, Ramzi Faragala, incredible actor that, that I've worked with in the past, really wonderful. <laughs> I take great comfort in knowing that my life and death is no more important than others. Why does it have to be so painful? Your illness is not just to test you, but to test the charity of others. You see these actors, they've been doing it. And the only difference is, and this is what people don't understand, is that their glass ceiling coming up was very different than what the glass ceiling is today. You know, I think for them, and, and this is what's really, and this is the thing for me that breaks my heart, and I pray to God there comes a day where I can pay it back to the generation of actors who came before me, who made what is happening today possible for me who for them coming up, their glass ceiling was, you know, terrorist number one or random goat herder number three, whatever it is. Um, That was their glass ceiling. They are these talented actors who I'm sure got these auditions and wanted to imbue them with three-dimensionality and humanity when the storytelling really just wanted them to be, you know, this unfortunate caricature. Again, I pray for a day where I can pay it back to those actors and hopefully be able to tell more stories and introduce more stories where we can allow those actors to do what they have and are working towards, but we're denied for so much of their their youth coming up. So in your opinion, what has changed? I think, there's just doors are more open now and it's not saying that we're like a finalized you know a finalized space but Mm. i think there are just more opportunities people are more willing you can get in the room honestly that i think is what's changed i think people you know people are more open to seeing different identities different bodies different you know different anything really in different roles that's kind of the biggest change and it's a beautiful change and mm. it's a very fortunate change. I think, and you see it, I think you see it more and more. If you look back, you know, 20 years, 90% of movies you saw, they were primarily just white men, frankly. That, that was the majority of what we saw. And I think thankfully now we're seeing it change more and more. And thanks to the work of incredible actors, incredible directors, incredible, incredible writers who are out there just doing the work and, you know, mm. trying to open more and more doors for people. This episode is brought to you by Lipson. Do you have an idea for a great new podcast? 
you can bring your idea to life and start your podcast today with Lipson. Our podcast has been on Lipson for almost three years and we love it. Lipson has everything you need to plan, launch and grow your podcast. Lipson provides some of the best resources created by expert podcasters who will show you everything you need to know. Like what equipment you should use, how to record great audio, how to get your show onto Apple Podcasts and other popular platforms and much more. Plus, as a friend of Immigrantly, when you sign up with Lipson, you get your first month of podcast hosting for free. Isn't that amazing? There has never been a better time than right now for you to start podcasting. Visit Lipson.com and use code FRIEND, F-R-I-E-N-D, that's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot and use code FRIEND, F-R-I-E-N-D, to get started and create your podcast today. So as an actor, how do you draw a line where you can be unapologetically yourself, right? Abu Bakr Ali. Um, but at the same time, you are not representing 1.2 billion Muslims because I am pretty sure there's a lot of pressure on you now like to be representative of this huge, diverse community. This wide community, yeah. I think, you know, I actually had this conversation recently with someone. And for me... Like, yes, in a public sense or something like, oh, for me, and this is the thing I'm really putting on myself to remind the world primarily, because I think Muslims know this, that the Muslim community is not a monolith and right. has several layers of intersectionality within it. You know, um, yeah, there's a, it's not a monolith. There are so many different layers. There are, there are black Muslims. There are, there are uh, Indonesian Muslims. It, right. It's such a wide, incredible, incredibly um, diverse group of human beings. And I don't think anybody really should be the representative of it and has the right to be the representative of it. And that's, the, that's where I think the conversation of why we need more and more voices to represent this, you know, however, 2.6 billion or however many people, mm. we need more and more voices to add to the conversation about what that, quote unquote, a Muslim is. Right. I, I don't think I have the right to be like the, quote unquote, representative. I think for me, the, the what I put on myself is how can I be the best version of myself and how can I how can I be true to myself and true to what I want to say in the world, but also not claim that I am the expert or the representative of such a wide variety of human beings, you know? So in terms of experimentation and all, how important is sustainability, financial aspect of it? We don't talk about it as much, but that's something that should be talked about more, right? Because not every artist or every creator can do work that's self-sustaining. That's very true. Um, that's very true. I think it's it's hard. I mean, it's 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 you know, I've I've been in this for probably like ten years now, and it's only in the last two or three years that I've been able to actually make 
a sustainable living off mm. of this. And it's hard. It, it, there's really no rhyme or reason about it. You kind of just have to, it's, it is a mix of luck and consistently putting good work out there if you can. Mm. And, you know, I have a lot, of, I've had, a, this recently actually, I've had a lot of young uh, artists reach out to me and say like, how did you get into this? How did you sustain it? How is this happening for you? Blah, blah, blah. All, all these really wonderful questions. And I think the answer for me was, I kind of, I tried to force myself to as much as I can dedicate myself to just doing the work as well as I can. Because mm. unfortunately, you kind of have to be four times as good as everyone around you to get through. And again, this is not ignoring different privileges that I carry in this industry based on like what I look like and who I am and all that. But I, on a personal level, I really tried to just do the best work I can as much yeah. as I could. Uh, and even then, frankly, right now, I don't know how sustainable it'll be. I, right. you know, you can only you, you can only pray because you just <laughs> never know. And my my attitude with this industry has always been nothing's guaranteed. Nothing is guaranteed to you know be a success. Nothing. Everything could fail at the end of the day. Yeah. So for me, for me, like the way I've justified it for myself, and it's freed me up a little bit, is if everything's going to be a failure or if everything's not going to succeed then why stress myself out as i'm doing it i like that might as well just try to find the joy within it and and because it is an industry unfortunately where you especially as an actor you have so little control you have virtually no control yeah and the 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 challenge is within this this universe where you have no control finding where you can have agency and where you can you know put in the work where you can find the space to say what you need to say, uh, which is hard. And it's a, it's, it's a up and down battle. I think for me, it's only in the last three or four years where I'm learning when and how to take agency, whether in a rehearsal room, right. whether on set and, and the ability to say no. I think that's a, a thing that I'm still learning and still navigating and getting better at, thankfully. But it, it is a learning curve as, as you kind of go into it and, and you're afforded more privileges in the industry through quote unquote successes. What is the most challenging part of reclaiming your agency or reasserting who you are? For me, I'm a people pleaser, unfortunately. Um, hmm. And that for me has always been the biggest challenge. I think I've thankfully gotten much better at it and I, I'm still working through it and, and learning as I go, resisting that impulse, resisting yeah. the impulse to just please people for the sake of pleasing um, uh-huh. and more so thinking to myself like what is the integrity of what i'm doing and what do i need to do to do the best work to serve the best storytelling that i can tell and that i want to tell yeah yeah that's kind of that's the the from from my personal journey it's it's resisting the the people pleasing muscle inside of me talking about performing arts and we've narrowed it down to film, theater, and TV, right? Because that's your lived experience. Now, by observation, the space itself seems progressive as well. But why is it still uh, white-dominated? Why is there lack of representation? And I don't even want to use the word representation because sometimes I feel that word itself has become performative in a way, right? So I, I wish there were a better word. If you have one, Abu Bakr, please share it with us. But why do you think we lack that still within that ecosystem? To be honest, it's so mm-hmm. funny. I wish I had a better answer for you, but I don't mm-hmm. know. I'm just, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, 
It's unfortunate. It's above my pay grade. That's, that's <laughs> I'm not one of the decision makers behind those decisions, to be honest with you. I wish I knew. You know, you know, I think speaking for myself and my community, I think I think it's really important. And this is a thing where I really I'm will forever push myself to, regardless of where I am in my career, is how do I mobilize whatever privilege that I carry in the industry in a current moment yeah. to advance someone, a, a colleague or, 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 or a friend or someone who, who from, my, from my community or another community mm. that, that is not afforded the same privileges, how do I use what I have to bring them into the room? Because at the end of the day, if we, if we say like, it's up to like white producer, blah, 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 or like white studio, blah, 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 to like, let me into the door, let us into the door, then there's no getting, getting anywhere. But if you as an artist are coming up and you're bringing more people up with you and more people up with you, at the end of the day, they can't say no. For me, it's just like, how do I, how do I advocate for other artists around me so that they can get into the same room? Because I think frankly, unfortunately, because of how little, uh, Again, I hate the word representation that we see. <laughs> there is a scarcity mentality that uh, used to exist and still slightly exists. Yeah. And I think we have to, as much as we can, resist that impulse of like, there can only be one. There can only be me. It's just, like once I'm in, like, uh, I got I to gotta hold on to it real tight or, or they're going to let this other guy into the thing. They're going to let this other person into the thing. And at the end of the day, you have to resist that impulse and think, the more people I bring up with me, the more doors there are going to be, the more stories there are going to be. Absolutely. That's so true. Now with your peers, do you think there is enough being done activism-wise using their public platforms? And you've talked about this, right? How you want to use your public platform. But like, is there anything missing from our collective consciousness that you think should be integrated more into the work itself. You know, I think there's something really beautiful that's happening where specifically with artists, they're more able to speak of a place of acknowledging, and we've talked about this, where they benefit from and where uh, where they like, they lie in the quote unquote like social, social world. So hmm. in, in terms of being able to name like, this is what I have to say and it's acknowledging my specific point of view, which which is informed by the various privileges that I carry based on like this and this and this and this about me, which I think is really important for people to know kind of where their worldview comes from right. because it allows you to listen to other people hmm. and be open to how they perceive the world and how their experiences in the world have informed what they have to say hmm. um, and be able to listen from that space. So I think that's changed in kind of a in a really lovely way. Yeah, I think in terms of activism, I think, you know, that's a word for me personally, I don't think should be taken lightly because I think activism is, you know, is when it's for, because we live in a world right now where I think people will consider like sharing an Instagram post as activism. <laughs> I think, you know, activism is- Yeah, it's much more than that. Yeah, exactly. It's so much more than that. It's, it's and again, I'm not an expert, but like, I'm glad that people are more and more seeing that it's, it's what are you actually physically doing or what are you uh, monetarily doing, mm. frankly, I think. How are mm. you, how, and how are you using, again, whatever privileges you have to, to mobilize that privilege yes. towards corporate activism? Yeah, yeah. You know, sadly, social media has somehow enabled performative activism. We see that a lot. And sometimes it 
scares me, especially in younger generations like yourself, as to how many people can really tell the difference, right? What is actual activism versus what you post on Instagram for a day or two? Yeah, of course. And it's tough, you know, and like, I, I never want, like for me personally, I don't want to like ever bash it. Because at the end of the day, I'm, you know, what is beautiful about it is that through social media, what, no matter what one's... Um, one's instinct might be in like posting a, a post or whatever, at the end of the day, it is spreading a word. Hopefully it's a mm. good word, you know. Mm. It is spreading information. It is spreading a, a point of view. Again, hopefully a good point of view. That's fair, <laughs> um, yeah. So that's helpful. Um, that's ideal. But, I, that, and that's why I kind of really wanted to be careful with the word activism, because, and I wish there was another word for, you know, when people post an Instagram post. <laughs> but yeah, it is. It's posting an Instagram post. In, in, in purpose of furthering the furthering world. exactly i like that yeah but I, i don't think anyone has the right to be like i'm an activist because i'm you know posting I'm, re- <laughs> i'm not even posting i'm reposting blah 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 on instagram <laughs> so in the end if you were to define america in a word or a sentence how would you do that america yes america it is a chaotic place that needs a desperate reckoning with its history and it's it's past desperately needs i think it is a i'm giving way more than a sentence right now but <laughs> I think in order for America to truly, quote unquote, move forward, it needs it needs it needs to just reckon with its history. Uh-huh. I think that's it is a place where like on a governmental and uh, an institutional level, it ha- and, and, and a monetary level, frankly, uh-huh. has not reckoned with its blood filled history. Absolutely. I love that. Thank you so much for coming on Immigrantly. Can you quickly share your social media? Yeah, it's, I mean, no one's going to be able to do it because my name is very difficult to spell, but it's at the Abu Bakr Ali. I, you know, and I hate it. I hate that it's the Abu Bakr Ali because it sounds so pretentious. <laughs> so like, look at me, I am the Abu Bakr Ali. But someone stole Abu Bakr Ali. If whoever you are, if you're out there. Uh, blessings to you, but I'm not a fan. So it's, <laughs> we'll put it in our show notes so people can just click on it. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much, Abubakar. This was so good. Thank you. Yes, this was so lovely. Thank you for having me. Thank you. You were my first podcast, by the way. I didn't tell you Really? This. Oh, wow. One. We're on no, it. I know I'm, uh, I'm a lot of course. I was hoping I didn't fuck it up. <laughs> you <laughs> didn't. It was such a fun conversation and I'm so honored. I didn't know that. Yeah, you're my first one. Number one. Thank you so much. You were wonderful. Abu Bakr was wonderful, and as a Muslim woman, I am so proud of the work he and other actors of color are doing. Do follow him on social media. And if you want to support an independent podcast, support us. You can check our Patreon link on our website. You can follow us on social media. You can write us a nice review and you can subscribe to us. Come back next week when we have another amazing guest. Take care.